Hi, and welcome to the bonus episode of Sentimental Garbage. I spoke to Joanne Harris on the phone for a little bit about magic, women, the church, France, and also how you can convert really hard research into something that people actually want to read. So you wrote two, were two books before Chocolat. Yes, there were two. Um, and then Chocolat comes along and it's just this monster success. And I, I'm sure you've been asked to like go over this many times over the year. But what, what, what was that like to have released two books to sort of, you know, uh, the, the average kind of acclaim that books, not the average, but there is no average. But do you know what I mean? Like the very realistic applause that, that most books get, which is that some people like it, some people don't. Da, 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 it's all very normal. And then to have this monster hit. What was that like? Well, it was a big surprise because, um, you know, Chocolat was everything that I'd been told that I shouldn't be writing, and I wrote it anyway. And I thought, well, you know, this isn't going to amount to much. Everybody keeps saying that I ought to write some sort of gritty thriller set in New York. So I wrote completely the opposite of all the advice I'd been given. And and it was a big surprise that, that actually it took off in the way it did. I thought, you know, it's this is perverse. It just clearly seems to me that publishing doesn't always know what it wants until it's got it and, and it doesn't know what's going to sell until it has sold. And if it hadn't sold and if it hadn't been any kind of success, it wouldn't have bothered me enormously. You know, I was I was just really enjoying what I was doing. No, because clearly you, you liked the job already, you know, you were already enjoyed it enough that you had written these two other books and you were you would have just kept on writing forever, really. Um, regardless of the, of the hit or done. not. Yeah, yeah, I, I probably would have done regardless of whether I was published or not. I had a teaching job. I was good at it. I was getting paid. I had a pension. Um, I didn't need to, to write books. I wrote books because I liked writing books, but I wasn't doing it for the money. Um, there wasn't any. I, I read somewhere um, that in the in the wake of the big success of Chocolat that many people, um, they sort of sort of played down where you were from and sort of tried to act like you were this sort of um, someone who came from nowhere when, I believe you went to Cambridge or Oxford, I always forget which. I, I studied languages at Cambridge. So, so you know, it, it wasn't a, a huge surprise that you would want to write. And, and yet there was this kind of thing being like, oh, this woman and she's come from nowhere and she's written this big book. I did, Was that strange at the time? Well, no, it wasn't strange. It's very familiar. I think it's a very familiar story, particularly with women. I think the media likes to to talk about Cinderella stories and housewives sort of accidentally writing bestsellers and this yes. kind of thing. The fact that I wasn't a housewife and that it wasn't an accident, it, it just didn't enter into it. I think they like that kind of narrative, but they tend to do it mostly with women. Yes. With men, they tend to accent academic credentials. They tend to accent the rise of a career. With women, they seem to like presenting it as something that just popped up out of nowhere, preferably without the woman even really trying. And they did this with J.K. Rowling. They've done it with pretty much every other word of mouth success that there's been in, in publishing where a woman has been concerned. It's very much they treat it like, you'll never guess this cat has learned to talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is a bit like that. But it's, it's, it's partly the way the newspapers like to present things. And I think they think it makes a better story. I think actually the story is much more interesting when you hear that somebody worked for 20 years to get where they got. But that's just me. That's why I, I don't work in journalism. <laughs> you know, I, I, I agree with you. And um, 
you you've become very known, and and I'm a a novelist as well. And at the beginning of my career, and your threads on how to navigate various parts of writing as a career have been so helpful and so useful to me. Um, oh, I'm glad you found them helpful. Thank you. I think you know you never stop being a teacher. Yeah, you you definitely do, and um, you more more than I think anyone I can think of on social media is someone who's very much about um, talking about the craft of writing and and the um, and the the fact that you have to sit. You've got this recurring joke about like how to be a writer, and then you'll have a list of tasks, and then you'll just be like tea, and it's just you're very much about <laughs> celebrating the mundanity of it. Yeah, I, I think I do. Um... I think partly this comes from the conversations I've had with people about being a writer and this kind of glamorizing and exoticizing of the idea of being a writer. And I don't tend to teach an awful lot of creative writing courses, but when I do get inveigled onto doing one, um, I find myself saying again and again and again, you know, you need to actually like writing because if you're going to be a writer, you will have to do an awful lot of it. And there will be an awful lot of stuff that you think is, kind of a bit pointless and repetitive and not very glamorous. And it's not all about hanging out with famous people, Mm. sadly. Um, Mm. You know, there is a great deal of just hard work. Um, And I find it, you know, it's interesting that so many people still don't quite get that. And so a lot of the the being on social media is about talking about all the aspects of writing and not just the the, the odd moments when maybe I do get to hang around famous people for a bit. (laughs) And... What's lovely as well is that even in in this book, which you've written twenty years ago, the importance of craft is so stressed throughout it, and and that being the way for women to navigate themselves out of desperate situations. Like I've always loved, um, both in the film and in the book, the way um, Vianne sort of adopts Josephine, and she she doesn't bail her out, she doesn't give her money, she doesn't say you can stay here indefinitely. She she gives her the craft of chocolatiering, you know. She gives her usefulness, and then she is empowered through that. Was that a deliberate thing you put there for women? Do you think or? Well, I'm not sure if I put it there deliberately, but it's the kind of thing that that I think is true. Um, you know, I, I don't have an awful lot of patience with heroines who wait in towers to be saved. My heroines tend to save themselves and save each other, and they tend to work rather than expecting, you know, some magical happening to to, mm. to save them from their everyday lives. I, I find people who struggle against adversity much more interesting than people who just give in or expect some some guy to come and sweep them off their feet that's not really the kind of story that i write definitely and it's it's interesting that you say magic and fairy tale because of course those things exist um in equal measure in the book um and what I like as well is that there's a sense, this kind of thrumming energy in the book, particularly between Vian and Anouk, um, where there's a sense that they could use magical means to attract visitors or whatever, or attract customers, um, but they don't use it. Did you have a very, like, I would love to know the science of the magic in Chocolat or the, the theory of magic, you know, because you're so invested in it and it's so clearly well-researched. Like there's so many allusions to, to tarot and paganism, all of which come from actual traditions. And I would love to hear more about your process with that. Of course. I think this is something that's interested me for a long time. Um, the idea of magic and belief and the fact that those things are not very far apart. As for the magic in Chocolat, I wanted to keep it quite 
ambivalent, if you like, so that people who who believed in magic could see how it worked. People who didn't believe in magic would find that it didn't jar against what they expected of the story. Mm. And so what I wanted was to use magic as a kind of metaphor in, in Chocolat and the, the related books, um, wherein it's a kind of metaphor for what human beings are capable of. The idea that actually when you strip magic down to the bare bones, it is all about transformation. Magic is about how you allow the world to perceive you, how you project against the world, how you can change your life and that of others. All of that, you know, without the the whole, the drama and, and the fireworks of, of magic, it's all about transformation. So so I wanted to to make it about that and I wanted to make it apparent from the narrative that magic wasn't something that only special people could do mm. and and what's what's fascinating is that you depict and um, in the book and and in what you just said um as magic as being about being autonomous and being self-possessed self-powerful creating power from within and then the rub and the, the, the yang to the yin of this in the book is that you have the Catholic Church that's looming and that's not about autonomy, that is about subservience. Um, yes, that's right. I wanted to, to present those two opposite ideologies and, and to, to put them into some kind of dramatic opposition with each other because they're actually very close. Mm. Both are based on, on this principle of change and both are preoccupied with feasting and fasting. Um, both have elements of spirituality which are not terribly far apart from each other, and yet, from a cultural perspective, they're very, very different. And it's all about interpretation, because the priest in Chocolat is not every priest. He has interpreted the Catholic creed in a way that serves his agenda, and therefore, he's he's put aside certain things and he's accentuated certain things, which keeps him in control. And this isn't really a commentary on Catholicism; it's a commentary on ideologies and and how how easy they are to subvert, according to what your particular personal agenda might be. Mm. One of the scenes in the book that struck me very very deeply, and I think possibly because I'm Irish and because I've come from a Catholic upbringing where um, it, it, it's, a, it's a flashback of um, Vianne thinking about her mother and about the, the, it's like the first appearance of the black man. And uh, and she, Vianne is, is uh, basically her mother has a kind of a crisis of confidence about raising her. They go to a convent or a church to confess. And then the priest tries to take Vianne from her mother and then what that creates is sort of uh, ancestral trauma about having your child taken away from you, which to me, I mean, I grew up hearing about the Magdalene laundries and yes. and, and and mother and baby homes and babies being taken, that being a very real fear. Was that something very you had so. in mind? Yeah. Well, I did have that in mind. Um, I mean, these are not just an Irish thing that they have existed elsewhere. They existed in France, too, to a certain extent. Um, and I think also because it was very much a novel about motherhood, mm. um, certain fears that I think all mothers have kind of emerged. And this became true of the the follow-up books too. Uh, much of it is about motherhood and what you expect from motherhood and what surprises you and what, what you are perennially afraid of. And one of the things that, that came out to me when I was doing the audiobook for Chocolat last year, um, I hadn't really read it 
for a really long time and there were things that I'd forgotten. But one of the things that, that really popped out at me was how much, much of it is about loss or anticipated loss. Yes, that's that's very true. And I, I read somewhere um, that when you had started writing Chocolat, you had recently become a mother yourself. Yes, and my daughter was four. Yes, and and you were sort of felt comfortable in writing about. And there's a be heartbreaking moments where Vianna's looking at Anouk and like her, she just feels like she's going to explode with love of her and for fear that she's going to be taken away. And was that something that you were grappling with yourself when you were writing that? I think inevitably my own thoughts about motherhood came out in that book, which was very much about motherhood. I think, you know, a lot of the time my books have existed in in parallel to things that were going on in my life. And I wouldn't have written about being a mother without having been a mother because I wasn't quite able to put myself in that position before. Mm. And it never occurred to me. It never occurred to me to try. I think if you haven't experienced something on an emotional level, then it's very hard to write about it in a convincing way. If you've never been in love, it's unlikely that you're going to write a good love story. Um, And I definitely thought that about being a parent. And then the choice to sort of come back to Vianne's story again and again. And, um, well, it's it's, it's a trilogy, I believe. And you've done a cookbook as well? It's not a trilogy. The cookbooks are are separate, although they did come from the... uh, uh, from from the the novels, but they they were written sort of almost under duress because so many people wanted recipes. Um, there are now four books, four books from uh, Chocolat, and there might be there might be more. I don't know. It, it's it was never my plan to to follow Chocolat up, but sometimes I find that characters come back and reveal another aspect of their story, and this has happened particularly with Fian, who I think has. A number of things in common with me, although I am not Fian. Mm. Um, and the reason it's taken them such a long time to write is that because Chocolat was about a woman with a young child, I had to wait for my child to pass certain important moments, breakthrough moments in adolescence before I could write the next instalment of that relationship. And so mm. this is why the the fourth one, The Strawberry Thief, which is coming out in, in April, is is about a woman with a grown-up child and some of the things that that can mean. And how does your daughter feel about that? I have no idea. She probably <laughs> talks to me about my books, you know. She's, they've been so much a part of her life since she was little that I think she just, you know, she just kind of takes it for granted. Sure, of course. Besides which, my daughter is not the same as Jan's daughter, not in every every way. They have a number of things in common, but they aren't the same person. Of course, I, I wonder as well, um, because the you're a writer who is so good. I'm, I'm honestly asking you this for I'm, I'm asking you advice, Joanne. <laughs> um, um, you're so good at taking huge amounts of research and knowledge and distilling it into these characters who it comes to them in a very second nature way. Do you know what I mean? Like all, like one of my some of my favorite passages in the book is when you know Vienne is um is treating the chocolate and it's she's going through this whole process and she really adores it and she's talking about her dealers and her traders and how she does this and everything and they and I almost prefer those bits of the book to the actual plot, which I don't know (laughs) if everyone feels that way. Um, but I find when I write, um. I and, I and I have to do research for a time period or for a thing, I end up getting so bogged down in details and I'm so like, I don't know, I, I end up losing the thread a bit. Do you have any advice for that? 
I think research is a wonderful thing and an absolutely necessary thing, but you don't have to let on to your readers how much research you've done. I mean, actually, the less boring factual stuff comes across in your actual narrative, I think the better. I think what you need to do, research is for you. It is for the actual writer to feel comfortable in the world that she's writing in. It's not about her demonstrating somehow to the reader that she read a lot of books or or spent time in chocolate shops or anything like that. I mean, some of that is sometimes useful, but actually I find that readers are happy with small amounts of fact, but what they really like is to feel that you are absolutely comfortable with your topic. And I think that the the novelists who do a huge amount of research and then feel that they need to to cram a lot of that into the end result tend to come out with slightly overwritten, slightly baggy narratives. If you look at um, at Donna Tartt, yes. the, the little friend, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful book in a lot of ways, and she's a wonderful writer in a lot of ways, but that book is at least 100 pages too long. <laughs> All of her books are 100 pages too long, even The Secret no, History, which is perfect. brief. You know, the, the, the Secret History was a wonderfully taught, brief piece of writing, um, the rest, I think, suffers from having done an awful lot of research and wanting to prove it. There's an, an awful lot about snakes in The Little Friend, um, awful lot about snake venom and different kinds of snake venom. And after a while, it sort of ends up shanghaiing the plot to a certain degree, I think. And I, I think the same is true of The Goldfinch, which I loved. But there is an awful lot of it. I, from what I recall of the goldfinch, there's a lot of like antiquing knowledge in. There's <laughs> lots of antiquing knowledge, lots of stuff about about old paintings, and some of it's very interesting. But I think it does get in the way of the telling of the story when there's that much of it. So I think feeling comfortable with one's research and having the vocabulary of it at your fingertips and being able to hint that you know a lot more about it than you, you mm. you're actually letting on to your reader is enough to give them confidence in you as a storyteller. And enough to give you enough rope to, to, to feed out your story without completely blocking it with, with lots and lots of factoids. That's a very good piece of advice. And I, and I wonder if, um, if Donna Tartt particularly suffers from this because she is given 10 years between every book. She seems to make that work for us, that she, she comes out every 10 years she has a book out. She's a marvellous writer. You know, yeah. I'm not uh, in any way saying that she's not, but I do think that... She probably did do a huge amount of research. And, and I think the same is true with some some historical writers who, who do a huge amount of research and, and feel that they somehow need to justify the research time, which I completely understand. But it's not always the best thing, I think, for the book. I agree. Um, I think I, I heard uh, Liz Gilbert describe this as being candlesticky writing, um, mm. <laughs> what you're sort of describing, <laughs> where the candlestick came from and how the wax is melting. Um all right, I won't keep you much longer, but I have one final question, and I, I, I hope you haven't got it before, but um, if Vianne wasn't the chocolatier, what job? What other job do you think you could see her in? What else has that sort of magical, transient delight, do you think? I don't really know. I get the feeling she would probably be a gardener or something like this, but the reason I chose chocolate is is very specifically for its long historic and folkloric association with its magical associations. On the other hand, a gardener could also be a herbalist and I could get those associations from there. But that, I think, has been done so often 
whereas yes. I don't think it had been done at the time with with the chocolatier, and I wanted to take that that kind of magical herbal archaic law and to to put it into a context that might surprise the audience rather than for them to go ah yes another hedge witch story which it would have been if if, if she had been something else and uh, yes it, it reminded me a little bit um of the alice hoffman book practical magic the have you heard that before at all yes i, I have um yeah. when was that written i think i think it was the end of the 90s as well Mm, it might so, have been. I haven't read it actually. Oh really? It's actually a lovely book that was, um, and the film is good. Much like yourself, turned into a, a pretty good film. But you know, the really you want to get the book, you know? Ah, uh, well, that's usually the case, I think, with books. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the best case scenario, I think. Yeah, it, it's it's great if you if you like the film of a book. But uh, if I really love the book, I tend not to look at the the film at all. I tend to fear disappointment. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's pretty good advice. Um, so, jo- Joanne, what are you working on at the moment? I know you, the fourth book of um of the Chocolat series is coming out, which is well, that should be coming out very soon. So, I'm working on building my my tour for that, which is going to be reasonably grueling, I think. But I've also just finished the first draft of uh, a novella. I've been writing some novellas inspired by child ballads, and I have Fantastic. one that's just just drafted out now, and. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to see how my editor feels about that before I start on, <laughs> on anything else. What, so, okay, what is a child ballad? Um, the child ballads were a collection of 300-odd English and North American folk songs, which were uh-huh. collected in the 18th century by a man called Francis Child. And they are not as well known as they should be in this country. And they, they ought to be very well known. They, they are basically our Grimm's fairy tales, and and for some reason, perhaps because they're so dark and bloody and filled with murder and incest and rape, perhaps um, that's that's the reason that they haven't quite taken off. Although, of course, also so are Grimm's fairy tales. Um, but yes, I've found them quite quite interesting, quite fruitful material. I've been recently, from the beginning of this year, I've been tweeting about one a day, and yes, although yes. people know them from folk bands some folk bands use some of them particularly some of the better known ones um most readers of folklore don't know them as well as you would thought uh, am i right in thinking the tamlin story comes from this tamlin does have a child ballad although i'm not sure it actually does come from that i think it has a previous source which is to do with the oral tradition a lot of these ballads are a lot of these ballads are stories about king arthur and robin hood and and things which clearly existed before the ballad because the ballad came from there. Of course. So so child ballad doesn't necessarily mean for children then. It, it's, uh... it doesn't mean for children at all. <laughs> no. no, absolutely. Uh, I don't think any of these old folk tales were meant for children. Grimm's fairy tales were definitely not meant for children. The fact that some of them have been adapted and softened and Disneyfied doesn't mean that the original source material wasn't extremely dark and cruel because... The people who loved them and the people who who told them were from dark and cruel times. They were there to serve a purpose. The purpose was not entertaining the kiddies. The purpose was trying to give hope to people with very dark and very challenging lives. And therefore, you had to have a certain expression, a reflection of that darkness. Otherwise, they wouldn't have recognised themselves in the stories. There's been a trend in recent years um, for fairy ta- Grimm's fairy tales and um, sort of folk tales that are very violent, sort of coming back into vogue and 
also taking on a kind of a feminist slant. Like we've had a few of those come out over the last few years. I think Angela Carter started it with the bloody chamber where she infused it with kind of a, a sexual feminist sort of thing. And then we've had, um, we had Tangleweed and Brian a couple of years ago from Deirdre Sullivan, which did a similar kind of a thing. Is, Mm -hmm. is Is that a direction that you see yourself going in? Well, it's it's what I did with the the three novellas that I've written, mm-hmm. um, and I think it really needs it. I think when you look at our our folklore and our fairy tales, and the child ballads are a case in point, they are incredibly misogynistic. They are based on the idea that women should be good, that they should be actively punished if they are not good. Um, and yes, that it's high time somebody stood them on their heads and, and said, actually, what if we do this? So one of the reasons I wrote Pocketful of Crows and, and The Blue Salt Road is that I wanted to to take a traditional story and to give it a little twist to try to make it relevant and interesting um, within the conversations that we're having about race, about gender, about all sorts of things that are are represented in a very particular way in these old stories, and and perhaps it's time to give that a change. I think Angela Carter's stories are a case in point. She does a wonderful job of of presenting these these stories and and showing behind the story that we know and love the hugely toxic and problematic subtext which many of them have, and to try and change that, try and make us aware of it, and to tell the story in a different way. Well, I'm I'm really excited to um to hear to read child ballads when your child ballads when they come out. When can we expect that um, that around? Well, um, Pocket Full of Crows came out um two years ago. Yeah, the Blue Salt Road came out last year. The new one, which is called Orfea, I'm hoping will come out in autumn. It really does depend on whether my illustrator manages to to do her work in time because she's got a lot of pictures to do. Bless her. And and she's extremely meticulous about them, um, but yeah, that that's that's like four child ballads that I've used. I've got another three hundred and fifty to go after that. <laughs> Amazing! So you're kept busy. <laughs> well, um, Joanne, thank you so much for talking to me, and it's it's so brilliant to hear about the rest of your your huge, very imposing career um, that I'll let you get back to. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanne. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell.